0: Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. Okay, so for our first podcast, we're going to talk about our experiences with Kotlin. Yes. And you've been using it for about a year through... It's, it's uh, like something, obviously, that Google is using a lot, but what yeah. got you involved with it? What drew you in?
1: Uh, I, so I was doing Java a long time ago. Sure. And then moved to Scala. Right. and spent a lot of time trying to learn Scala. And uh, and I love Scala and use it when I can now. Mm-hmm. But Scala, I think, is, while, while I love it and it's my favorite, I don't think that Scala is necessarily worth it for most Java developers who are looking to take some steps forward in a programming language. And so, so I started learning Kotlin to see is this viably a better path forward for Java developers? And after having used it for a year now, I think absolutely it's, there's so many great things in there for Java developers. Um, so that's why I started exploring it.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I've built a number of things with it now.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm surprised because I feel like I, I sort of got pulled into it. I'm not even, it's, it's a little hazy now, but I thought, oh, well, it'll be like when I wrote Thinking in Java. I'll write this book on Kotlin, and it'll be interesting. I won't actually use it, just like I don't actually use Java for anything. Um, But it started just creeping in, and I started noticing how many well and their philosophy is steal all the good features from that that work They've not just improved. the good <laughs> ideas that are proven to work in other languages and they just kept doing that and it's really gotten to where i'm actually starting to reach for it versus python which has been my yeah. go to for if i need to solve any of my own problems but i'm i'm kind of creeping you know python's still great and still really enjoy that, but, but, um, there are a lot of things where I'm going, yeah, I could do that in Kotlin and it wouldn't be painful. Like it would be in Java. Yeah. And you've been writing a book on Kotlin. So you've been digging deep for, yeah, for three years now, we're almost done. I'm on the, not (laughs) long have you been saying almost done for, um, I'm pretty careful about saying that kind of thing. We, We have the, um, early access edition up which i in that set um uh well if you go to dot you can see it and that i said it was 80 percent done it was probably more but i wanted to be a little conservative yeah so um but i'm i am working on the not the last chapter in the book but the final chapter because it was a hard one it's on creating generics so um, but even the generics variants, know, man, variants just—it's tricky. It is because you have to understand what the problem you're, you're, because, <laughs> and it's still, you know, I haven't gotten the whole clarity of it, you know, to the point where I can explain it to somebody and they go, "Oh, I see what you're talking about." Because, because initially you want to go, well, it's really about upcasting. So if you have a list of um, pets and you upcast it to a list of animals. Well, that's not really upcasting though. You're assigning a list to a list. Right. It's what it holds that makes the
1: variance an issue. Well, and it depends on if it's in or out, which I, I think Kotlin did a good job of, of distinguishing the difference between in and out. Because um, you want different variants, whether it's coming in or going out. Mm-hmm. and and. That made sense to me, but I don't totally remember why.
0: Yeah, well, because because when when you say something is in, that means that you the methods, the member functions they call them in Kotlin, um, can accept arguments of that type. Oh, and you but want them to be, be able it. to
1: be more specific when they come in mm-hmm. and less specific when they come out. Like right. you want to be able to pass, to pass in a list of dog to something that takes a list of animal. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes out, you don't want it to be a list of dog. You want it to be that list of animal. Right, right.
0: right. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the in and out is actually a much better mapping. And I'm not sure if they picked it. I wonder if they picked that up from like TypeScript or something. Yeah, I don't know where Cause I know I that, seen that they went everywhere to before. get features. And some of them were just, you know, like in Java, th- there were just some idiotic decisions made because they were in a hurry or something like that. Like there was no need for the new keyword in Java cause in C++ new distinguishes, am I creating it on the heap versus creating it on the stack? In Java, you create everything on the stack, so you don't need the new keyword. But they didn't think of that, or know it, or yeah. understand it, or something. There's so many things that, the, yeah, the original Java designers didn't understand yeah. when they were doing important language design. Yeah. So. Yeah. So in Scala, they
1: have uh, it's covariant, contravariant, invariant. Oh, they actually have those keywords? Well, no, they they use like pluses and minuses, and I can never remember. But what's interesting is that I think very typically you want something to be, I don't covariant coming in and contravariant coming out or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and I can never remember. So I just... You know, yeah try stuff and the compiler tells me basically what right. to do
0: or the or the ide or the ide yes yeah. that's way yeah, i have to say one of the things that has happened in this process because initially i was using um sublime text and it's I still use it for some things. But then finally, it wasn't until like December or whatever, I finally started using IntelliJ. And it was like, oh, my God. God. Oh, why haven't I been using this the whole time? Because it does so much for you. And I even... I mean, my friend uh, Luciano Ramallo, who's who's wrote Fluent Python. I was saying, "Oh, you have to try PyCharm for uh, Python." He goes, "Oh, no, no." I, I go, "Really? Give it a try. You'll yeah. see, because it does things for you." Yeah, that's the key. You yeah. know how much it does. And it's like rather than hunting around looking stuff up, yeah. you just yeah, it's it's
1: IntelliJ has definitely become a very integral part of my development cycle because the first thing I do when I'm writing code is Get rid of the red squigglies. sure. And then, then there's going to be some warnings or you know some hints that kind of thing mm-hmm. that I try to uh, try to get rid of as well. Uh, but then the compiler, when it runs, hopefully by the time the compiler runs, like it should just compile because IntelliJ has helped me get there, right? Um, so yeah, it's it it my like most inner dev loop is intellij and Mm -hmm. all the things it's doing for me and then the compiler is kind of that second tier loop and then my tests are kind of the third tier and the little
0: light bulbs that come up for you like you can see because i've started doing things like going i wonder what type i've just created and you can do the thing where it says put down the explicit type that's super helpful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah there's you know, so many things that make my life easier. It is an amazing tool. So, um, so I I saw a survey the other day about what people like the most about Kotlin, and like far and above everything is the handling of nulls. Yeah, making sure that you don't have null problems. Yep. Yeah.
1: I- it's we i've had that in scala with with option and other other structures um the nullability the the syntax in kotlin for dealing with nullability is is really nice where i get a little bit tripped up on it is that there's some things that that are lost from the way that i dealt with it in scala Hmm. so as an example it's kind of hard to do chaining of nullable things and so let's say that you um let's say that you have a nullable thing that you're going to get a key out of and Um. then you want to go look into a a set for that key um, and that also can be nullable so you've got like this nullable chaining that you want to perform and not not the dot syntax like that part is great with the with the question mark nullability operator but more like I've got two separate data structures and I need to use the the thing that might come out of the first one to get something out of the second one, which can also be nullable and then be able to like chain those things together. And when you're using option it's super easy because uh, options a monad but i'll try not to say that i word on on our podcast but um but it's it's super easy to do that kind of thing when you have monads and with with the the nullability operator it takes a bit more work to to um to do that kind of thing so
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's there's so many great things about it and how easy it is to avoid null issues but but there are some things that i miss from from the the Scala days, Schala yeah. Days,
0: it's type. so it took me a while to understand that their model is um, rather than throw an exception, return a null. Yeah, which is like I, I can kind of see why they made that choice because if you don't and you want to be able to you know do this your next step maybe monads yeah and they're like i came across an article always a slippery slope to monads yeah it seems like it and i so i can see they go ah that's too much to load on to people so we'll say we'll return the value or return null null and then you can use these you know various operations to
1: to to deal with that but it's so much of their value is around interop with java and there's so many
0: java libraries that return null so (laughs) it feels like being when i because i was on the c++ committee for its first eight years and that was so dominant and and people talk about c++ being a badly designed language and i can i can categorically state it was not it was very carefully designed but it had this constraint of backwards compatibility with C, which just caused all kinds <laughs> of struggles. Uh, and if only we could always start fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I feel like uh, what Kotlin's been able to do with its compatibility with um, Java is really, I mean, it's quite brilliant yeah. in many ways. Because yeah, like
1: extension functions on Java objects, like that.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, it's a when I columnist. first saw extension functions, I thought, ah, this is just, you know, syntactic sugar. This is not, I don't really see that. But, but then, then when it you changes s- the way you program and you're like, whoa. It does. It changes the way you program. It changes the way you think about inheritance for sure. Because you go, oh, inheritance to add functionality? No, why would you do that? You would just, yeah. and then the ability for an extension function to work with a lot of different types is fascinating. But in particular, with yeah, Java. generics
1: combined with extension functions,
0: yes. Well, and also the um, function extension lambdas, yeah,
1: extension lambdas,
0: right? That that's really interesting. Some of the possibilities that you can do with that, yeah, yeah, it's. Um, uh, and, and in, like when you take a Java class, you know, one of the standard, like collections or whatever, and then you put all these extension functions on it and now you make it into something really useful. But if you have an object of that, you can pass it right back to Java. Yeah. And so you get all, you you really get the best of both worlds. I, I have to say it's, yeah, extension functions are like,
1: yeah,
0: n- never what I thought they would be. Yeah. So, and I'm still puzzling. I'm going... Why is that such a powerful thing? I don't don't fully understand it. I think
1: think a big part of it is that we were forced into one model of, of inheritance of polymorphism, Mm. uh, which was inheritance based polymorphism Mm -hmm. and extension functions gave us another way to do a type of polymorphism, but without having to use
0: inheritance. And um, Mm -hmm. there, there are, others as well. <laughs> well, yeah, generics are um there's a name it's uh parametric polymorphism. Yes. That's what generics are. Yeah. Yeah, so you have you have I think these... there's like four different oh, types of polymorphism
1: in in across different languages, but Oh. Yeah. Um
0: oh, uh type classes are kind of a way to achieve some Yeah. Kind of, and it's behavior. and it and then you start going. Well, what what do I mean when I say polymorphism? When I say these things, it's it's like it it muddles it muddies yeah. the water. Yeah, ad hoc and, polymorphism.
1: I think is um, uh, I think extension functions are kind of ad hoc polymorphism. Uh, okay, I, I can't remember.
0: And Julia uses um, it. I mean, it has a different way of doing things because. It's everything is kind of function overloading oriented and it's, well, that's using, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still coming up the curve on
1: Julia. But I uh, learned via Twitter yesterday that Julia's arrays are one based instead of zero based. And the person that posted it was like, this is kind of a deal breaker for me. <laughs> but what's interesting is that I, uh, after reading that, I realized that I don't ever really use numbers for accessing arrays anymore. No, because I'm I'm not you're, using like for loops. You're a functional guy, exactly. Now. So yeah, so you wouldn't you don't care. Yeah, I and, call dot head or dot first sure. in Kotlin, or first or null in Kotlin. No, and
0: so I don't
1: care if it's zero based or one based anymore.
0: I no, I, I feel uncomfortable using numbers to look things up. It feels vulnerable to me. Yeah.
1: So yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing. At least with Kotlin, you, you can look things up based on their index mm-hmm. and, and get a nullable um, result out. Right. So, but you, you, it, if you are do, using numbers, then you definitely could, I don't I, Everyone knows that things are zero based, except for in Julia, I guess. So hopefully people aren't using one to, get the first thing but then have bugs because anyways,
0: they shouldn't use that. Yeah She's well done, Julia's done designed for massive amounts of data and so indexing in by number seems huh. unlikely but it, I'm it would be interesting to know why they made that decision. Maybe it's because they're working predominantly for data scientists and yeah. things like that and but still, I don't know. That's, that's a curious one. Yeah. So, um, so what else do you like about Uh, the data
1: classes stuff is really nice. Um, we have something similar in Scala case classes and so, but, but yeah, generating code to me just always feels so dirty and you mean handwriting boilerplate. Yeah. 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 Well, and with Java, People will say, "Oh, you know, your IDE generates the getters and setters and equals and hash code and all that kind of stuff." But like, I don't even want to see it. I just like the, compi- yeah, the it, compiler should
0: generate it for me.
1: Yeah, oh, if it well, needs it, compiler should generate it. Yeah. So, so the data classes syntax is really nice.
0: Yeah, and that's propagated to a number of. I mean, Java has it now. I I, mean, I know what Python is has picked up in, data? in
1: Java fourteen or something. Is
0: that yeah? yeah. And and Python picked up. They they've had they have a standard decorator for data classes now yeah. to do that kind of thing. And it's like everybody sees it's a good idea. Yeah, but and I don't think they. In, I, I mean, have, Kotlin didn't invent it. I think Kotlin. That's another feature that they stole. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I saw it first in Scala with case oh, okay. classes, but I'm mm-hmm. sure somebody else had
1: it before mm-hmm. that. Um. So yeah, data classes are awesome. Uh the i want to go back to the returning null thing because okay i that is one of the things that's been hard for me in kotlin is is that um mentality mm-hmm. not that you can't do it differently but but a lot of the libraries um like i think exceptions should just die i hate exceptions uh but what that means and and with nullability what that means is that every function should return something that can either succeed or fail. And then you should be able to take that thing and, and do what you need to based on that, that result. Um, This is what's called like bifunctor IO or, uh, or if you're doing IO, then we call bifunctor IO Um, any kind of effect. I think it's a much better model than, than, the returning null kind of thing i think that so was a compromise but yeah i think because of java interop it does seem like like exceptions and and during and returning null
0: are just they had to kind of bring that along with them there was a article recently by uh roman oh, yeah. did you see it yeah. yeah where he said oh and and what was nice and i incorporated uh, the descriptions into the book which because because they were saying okay if it's you know if it's something that could fail is it's expected to fail then you do the null or or value yeah and then you know if it's a truly if it's truly an error you throw an exception but you don't catch it at the lowest level you catch it at the highest level yeah. and that's almost always io errors which Or, no, wait, that was a different category. IO errors, which could throw exceptions, but and could actually be recovered from. Right. So then you, but you do it at a little higher level. And and the mistake in uh, Java was forcing you to manage this at the kind of lowest level or, you know, pass it up or whatever. It was just one of the. The mistakes that were made in java yep. as we, we were learning yeah so it's at least i understand the model now because before i was trying to i was putting in my own succeed or fail which you can do very nicely in kotlin yep and they're yes yeah i was always su- i was
1: surprised
0: diving in that they didn't have
1: a success kind of um uh trait or right abstract class and or that would be a, um, what, what Scala calls an either, Mm -hmm. um, and then, or a try is a type of either that can either, either, uh, succeed or fail. Right. And, um, yeah, I was surprised that there wasn't one in the Kotlin standard standard library, but Romans blog helped to understand why they have a different way of
0: thinking about that. Right. And the, it it was comforting to know that cuz i was wondering the same thing why don't you do this this is nicer but it was intentional they thought about it and they said yeah, yeah for reasons we we're going to do it this way it's better than the java way it's not as good as as returning you know intentional objects yeah. but but it is like yes this is the model that we're going with so yeah. at least i know what's happening now yeah yeah um, I want to save
1: coroutines for, for last. Um, so I was trying to think about some of the other, other syntax things that, that I like in, in Kotlin or that, that
0: have been interesting. I like the, um, the, in the, the attention to simplicity and clarity, cause they don't do you know, they, they look at how are things going to be used in general. And so like, if you create a class, you can't inherit from that class unless you say the class is open. And if I'm going to override this function, I have to make that open. And so it kind of forces you to say, yes, I'm going to be doing these things with this thing. And I like that. Um, And, and how, um, minimal you can make your uh code if you want you yeah. know you can say class bare no semicolon yeah the lack of semicolons i gotta <laughs> say i don't even think about that anymore yeah. unless i'm working with the semicolon language and then it's like why are you making me do this yeah. i just feel like it's you know lazy compiler yeah. writers yeah uh type inference along those lines like Type inference.
1: It's Something I almost forget about because it just seems like
0: <laughs> of Why course every you?
1: modern language has type inference.
0: Yeah, um, but uh, but Kotlin did a great job with that. Yeah, 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 and it's interesting to note how the, I mean, at least my perception is that the ordering of things, you know, the way because because if you look at C, it you know gives the return type first and then uh, yeah. you know and it doesn't have an explicit function and or var or val and when you see oh if you have those things it allows it to do this much cleaner yeah uh, syntax and type inference yeah. and stuff
1: i i don't think there is languages that are doing type inference well that don't put the type information on the right hand side right um yeah so that's kind of converging to a standard around type inference <laughs>
0: Right, parameters the, on the, right side. the stuff that they added to Python, the optional um, typing, is yeah. the right-hand side stuff, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And
1: um, speaking of val, yeah. uh, the immutability stuff is is pretty good in Kotlin. Uh, it feels pretty natural, and and it's not as much as it is in Scala, where in Scala it feels really nasty to do immutability, So mm-hmm. it's not that far but at least most stuff in Kotlin really um, I think tries to be immutable uh, with vowels. And so, so I think that's good. There still is in Kotlin. I've seen quite a bit of like builder pattern
0: stuff, which mutable builder pattern, I, I just think should die. But, um, um, well, cause they have a, I mean, they, they have the, um, you know, where you have the Lambda. Yeah. And that's that you don't like that. If it's mutating, no, it just gets. It's well, it's mutating within the thing, but right. once the thing is done, it's immutable. Yeah. yeah. So what, just, what's your objection to that? Uh, there's there's things that are
1: not expressed in that case that get really hard to to grok. So um, what I've what I've seen happen in some of those cases is that there there is a necessary ordering in the builder that you have to that you have to uh do th- you have to do your builder kind of pieces sometimes in a certain order so that the thing that is doing some mutation of something requires the presence of some other thing but that's not actually expressed in any way and so then you get weird errors where you try to like do something in the builder that's doing some mutation underneath the covers so yeah I'd um just the whole mutable builder pattern i've mm. just run into too many hmm. too many places where i can't i can't um logically understand why something needs to be the way that it needs to be it's not expressed in the type system or in the
0: the language constructs so well because because we had in the book we had um an explanation of how to exam for I think our example was um, a somewhat complex initialization of a, say, a two-dimensional map or something, and went through doing it in the functional way, and it was complicated, and so they've added, um, a, you know, some kind of map builder, or whatever, which okay. is the thing that you're talking about, and it's like so much simpler to think about, yeah. uh, at least at this level now yeah. what you're talking about sounds like it's maybe more sophisticated but um, they ended up taking the section of you know doing it the the proper functional way out because oh, yeah. it was just a little too overwhelming yeah, you know yeah. I'll probably turn that into a blog post or something yeah but, um, yeah um,
1: yeah I think the language needs to have certain things that it does to help you avoid mutable builder patterns. And, and Scala, I think, does a good job of that. But but mm-hmm. Colin, I've seen where maybe due to some language constraints, they just kind of punt in some cases and say, yeah, just do a mutable builder. It's
0: easier. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, so builders should die, but we can't kill them yet.
0: I, I mean, I, I think those are being... <laughs> created at this point so because because i know that um version 1.4 i believe added this thing that i was talking about so yeah so yeah you can look at it and see if it if it's still offensive to you yeah yeah um but uh yeah and then there's so many things that they cleaned up from using java just i mean you know having to put classes and eats in a single file in this weird oh, yeah. situation you know, all that's gone. Yeah. You know, nice. and it's like it's just, oh, I want to do this thing and the language isn't pushing back saying, oh, we have rules and yeah. you know everything's gotta be an object. Well I mean there's a huge thing for you right there. Yeah. It's yeah. like you can have functions and you don't yeah. you're not forced into this object thinking yeah. model which um which was where I started, but now I've come around to I you know there's some people who go, oh now all objects are bad yeah. and i'm going no no sometimes sometimes objects are useful the the, the problem was having the idea that everything Always. should be an yeah. object yeah. forced on you that was yeah. that was a poor choice cuz yeah. most of, I, and i've had this experience with python where i start writing my program and just using functions and things and then something doesn't feel right and it doesn't feel right and i go oh That thing wants to be an object, but it's, it's more of a special case than the general case. Yeah. So I think. It's nice that
1: Colin lets you structure things, have what feels natural. And then you can easily move things around as, as you discover how things should be structured. Hey there, this is James as this was our first podcast. Of course we had some technical difficulties and my computer went to sleep. And so we talked for about another half an hour before we realize that. We've learned some things, and so we will continue this conversation on episode two. Thanks for listening.